I must confess that I, um, I love the Psalms. And so for those of you that don't know, we had a bit of a departure from our series last week to honor All Saints Day, but we have been in a series this fall wherein each Sunday we're talking about this book of the Bible called the Psalms. And the Psalms are essentially 150 prayer songs meditations um, that uh, the people of God have engaged with in both an individual and a communal way. And these are not necessarily stories as much of the Bible is. Uh, they're not uh, narratives um, and they're not kind of sayings as some of the Bible are uh, is, but they're somewhat that way. They, this is more poetic language. They're, they're poems, they're songs. And each psalm is meant to be a way, a give us an opportunity to see what life with God is like. And I think each psalm also gives us an invitation into that life. I love the song, psalms. I am one who is a songwriter and a musician. And so I find the psalms always particularly exciting to engage, except this week. I did not find this psalm particularly exciting. Um, in fact, I found it a bit troubling. Um, and part of the reason that I found it troubling is because it called me out in a way that I wasn't asking for. <laughs> and part of the reason I found it troubling is because its language I found to be, to be perfectly honest, inappropriate. And then part of the reason I found it troubling was because I feel like it opens up a can of worms that is quite large that I don't know that I have time to uh, adequately um, talk about in the next 15 or so minutes. And so I bring to you my vulnerabilities this morning. I think that, 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 that the text has done and God's spirit in this text has done a good work on me. And also I still have a lot of questions. And I think that the question, the sort of can of worms that gets opened up in this text is one that often gets opened up when you talk about life with God. And that is simply the question, what is the relationship between what we do and what God is doing? What is the relationship between our agency, our freedom to live and move and have our being and do things and what God is doing, God's agency, how God is living. Um, and, and I find this question to be one that I don't like engaging because it just feels too big. It feels too big. And so I feel grateful in some ways for Psalm 127 because it gives us a little bit of a way to engage that in some specific language. And I will say, if you feel a little bit uh, you know, kind of called out by it, I think that that's okay. And if you feel a little troubled by it, I think it's okay. And if you feel comforted by it, I think that's okay too. But I want to invite us into Psalm 127, this way of kind of engaging that question. What is the relationship between what we do and what God is doing, what God does, what God is like, how God acts among us and in our world. I'm going to pray for just a second and then we'll get into it. Hmm. 
So Creator, we um, come to your great story with humility, uh, knowing that it is great. <laughs> um, it is vast. And we trust that you uh, have, a, have a way that you want us to walk as we explore your story this morning. Um, so would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts um, find themselves on that good road? Um, O oh Lord, who is our strength and the one who saves us. Amen. So, we're going to sort of start at the beginning because it makes it clear, unless the Lord builds a house, the la their labor is in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, in vain the sentinels, or the ones who keep watch or keep guard, in vain do they keep their vigil. And this almost seems cruelly oversimplified. If God's not doing it, then it's in vain. Other translations uh, have that word pointless. If some of you are familiar with the word, uh, with the book of the Bible known as Ecclesiastes, this word is the energy of that entire book. That book starts out, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. <laughs> um, that is the energy of this word, and that is sort of the energy that the psalmist is, is leading us into. If God's not doing a thing, then what we do has no point. It is vain. It is in vain. And I do find that to be a little bit oversimplified as I in, my, in our first read. So you know what? We're just going to come back to it. Just put a marker in the first one and a half verses. We're going to come back to it. But I think we start to get some specificity with this next clause here. It is in vain that we rise so early and go to bed so late. Vain too to eat the bread of toil. Some translations say anxious toil. For you, O oh Lord, give to your beloved sleep. Huh. Now, I don't know about you, but when I saw that, that's that thing, uh, rise so early and go to bed so late. For me, I keyed in on go to bed so late because I, my friends, go to bed so late. I don't know about you, but uh, there is this thing that, that, that has been discovered. I think Pastor Aaron has talked about it too. Um, kind of that has come about during the pandemic, this sort of phenomenon of, of revenge bedtime, wherein uh, you, you, you basically decide that, you know, after work is over, maybe after the kids go to sleep, that's my time. And I'm going to use however much of my time I want to, to relax and to do whatever. And I 100% subscribe to revenge bedtime. Because once those kids go to sleep and once I close that door, I'm like, it's my time. <laughs> it is in vain that we rise so early and go to bed so late. Interesting. I find it interesting that in this dialogue about how to understand the relationship between what I do, what we do, and what God is doing, this clause essentially opens up a conversation about sleep, about rest. 
the first thing to consider in terms of what God is doing is to love us by giving us rest, by leading us to sleep. God seems to have a high value for rest. And and those of you um, who might be familiar with the biblical text may know that in the beginning of the biblical account, in Genesis, it is God who rests. And as God makes God's people, rescues them from the Egyptians, is creating this community, God shapes their communal life around patterns of rest. In writing about the Ten Commandments, theologian and scholar Walter Brueggemann refers to the Ten Commandments as policy statements, which I find very interesting, and writes this about their, the particular policy statement about the Sabbath. If you know, uh, one of the Ten Commandments is you should keep the Sabbath. And says this, at the center of this list of policy statements at Sinai stands the regulation of Sabbath. Perhaps Israel's most stunning countercultural notion of justice. In this command, Israel broke decisively from the pharaonic or system of Pharaoh of production and consumption. Israel asserts that rest for self, for neighbor, and even for God is the goal and quintessence of life. Now, this rest is not passivity, but the kind of at-homeness that precludes hostility, competition, avarice, and insecurity. The Sabbath provision of ancient Israel anticipates a community of peace, well-being, and joy. There could hardly be a bolder refutation of Pharaoh's brick quotas than the Sabbath principle. You see, God's desire to love us by giving us rest is not just because our bodies need sleep. It is to fundamentally interrupt a pattern that has happened for millennia, which defines our value by what we produce. And then the picture becomes a little more clear because the relationship between what we do and what God is doing in the world take shape as something where we don't overvalue what we do as a way to become addicted to our ability to do, as a way to then value and devalue people for what they can make or produce in this particular culture. The the, the call to rest fundamentally evens us all out because we all need rest, friends. And we all need rest because God rested and God rested in particular after making humans, the ones made in God's image and said, this is very good. And then God rested friends to eat the bread of anxious toil is to eat and feast on the lies that we are what we produce. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. It is in vain that we live a life 
absent of rhythms of rest. Sleep is the fundamental one. It's not the only one, but it is the fundamental one. And then we move on to a really troubling image um, in the rest of this psalm that I want to unpack for us just a little bit because I think there's something in it. However, it says the following. Children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a gift. Now, there are some Bibles who have taken the liberty of trying to going through a translational effort that, that, that gives the text more of an inclusive quality. And so in most Bibles, you will not read children, you will read sons are a heritage from the Lord. And I actually think that in this case, that is a better reading of that word because of the context. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. And as I read sons are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb is a gift, I began to be troubled. And then you get this image of, of, of competition, the sort of like the, the, the kids are arrows. And I was like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. And even if it did make sense, I don't like it because I don't think people are weapons. I don't like that. Um, yes, it is, Amy Beth. It is the originator of the kind of mindset in which people believe that to have a lot of kids is awesome. And they call it the quiverful, right? Because of this kind of thing. Let me, let me lead us into this image, okay? So um, we get in verse five, they shall not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate, okay? Let us remember that households back in this time Households weren't just one family. They weren't just one nuclear family. They were a set of three to four nuclear families surrounded by a head of household where was always a male. And it wasn't just the sons of that man, but it might've been the sons, it might've been grandsons of that man. It might've been grandnephews, right? There was a particular way in which men just out, had outsized rights in the Near East in this time. And what would happen is that when there were other tribes or communities that would come into a town, um, maybe they would be wandering, maybe they would be nomadic, and they would stop by this town and they would feel like they have a right to be there for some reason, and there might be um, some contentious nature of their conversation about that. What would often happen is that the sons of that town would go to the gate, the gate being the entrance to the town, the gate also signifying kind of the place where people that were visiting and stopping by might come in order to have a dialogue with that town. They would bring the sons, right? In this culture, the sons have a lot of social and legal capital to kind of speak for everyone in the town. And so, there is this way that, that, there, that, that this image is describing not just a family, but really what it means for a community to be protected. What it means for a community to not be left totally vulnerable. When these sons and grandsons, nephews and grandnephews can head to the gate and defend this town, can speak for this town. Now, I wanna make it clear. 
I do not find this image particularly meaningful to me. I do not actually believe that those who were not able-bodied men couldn't speak for themselves. That is not at all actually true. <laughs> we just got finished talking about a reality about getting rest, which is based in the fact that we are all made in the image of God. I do not also believe that people should be described as weapons. I don't think that's particularly helpful because God is not trying to use people to destroy other people. That is not at all in the reality of God. And yet there's something also interesting here because as one who is a cisgendered heterosexual man, I see this image and I feel appropriately challenged. And the reason I feel that is because I see a way that those in this particular mal-shaped societal way are, are choosing to take the privilege they have to bring it to the place of contention and to say, I'm gonna use that privilege to make sure that my community is safe. In particular, I'm gonna use that privilege in furtherance of making sure that the vulnerable have what they need, that the vulnerable both survive and thrive. Again, I have tension with this because I actually think that in a communal setting, the vulnerable can speak for themselves and should, and we should be listening. <laughs> but I also think there's a way that sometimes, many times, we're not listening. Some of you have heard this from me, but there have been um, some conversations um, as we have been trying to figure out what it would be like as a church to put micro housing in a part of our uh, church property. And this would be temporary assistive housing for those uh, who need housing on the way to getting permanent housing, who have a job but need various wraparound services that would definitely uh, be supported by having a place that they live before they get to a permanent housing solution. And what's interesting is that in the past week and a half, uh, there's been some miscommunication with uh, the city of San Leandro. In the past week and a half, there's even been indications of minor to moderate resistance among elements of the city of San Leandro. Um, and I could feel myself getting angry. I could feel myself getting angry. And I thought about this verse. I thought about this image evacuated from all of the male gaze and evacuated from the layers upon layers of patriarchy, what I see in this image is an invitation for those who have privilege to make their way to the places of conflict and to employ that privilege appropriately in partnership with the vulnerable. That is what I see in this image. And that is, I think, what I was trying to process over the past week and a half. I kept asking God, how is it that I make my way to the places of conflict? Who do I need to talk to in the city to make it clear what this project is and what this project isn't? Who is it that I need to communicate with to let folks know that this is just about housing? 
and folks need to be housed. And we have property with dead trees and a dead well on it. And that's it. So let's build some housing. That's all. And it was interesting because then I called a city official and then that city official talked to another one and then that city official talked to another one. And it was interesting because they came back and said, we're not opposed to this at all. There's just a mistake. And I was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> the saga continues, friends. But I think I felt compelled by this passage to say, okay, like I think that the unhoused should, should, are speaking. I think that the unhoused are communicating clearly that they want to be housed. And I know that because when I drive along the freeway that I drive along every day, I see them building houses out of tents along the side of the freeway. They want to be housed, friends. They're speaking to me. I hear the message, but that message is not being received. And so I've got a measure of privilege to be able to amplify that message. And so I'm going to do it, but I'm never going to do it. I'm going to try not to do it. I can't promise, but I'm going to try not to do that without constantly being in conversation with the unhoused and other advocates. And then I wanna return finally to this first verse as a concluding marker, because I think now we can begin to understand the pointlessness that the psalmist describes. Because in that first verse, it says to remind us, unless the Lord builds the house, their labor is in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city in vain, the sentinels keep their vigil. And when I think about it, things start to take shape. God's activity in the world is toward giving us rest as God's beloved. And God's activity in the world is toward giving the vulnerable the opportunity to both survive and thrive by giving those with resource and privilege the opportunity to partner with them in their survival and thriving. And then I ask myself, do I want to be a part of a thing that's not doing those things? Do I want to be a part of a thing that is not actively allowing me to rest? Do I want to be a part of a thing that is operating against God's desire to allow the vulnerable to survive and thrive? I don't think that I want to be a part of a thing that operates outside of those things. They feel fundamental. God's desire and invitation and making space for us to rest feels fundamental. God's desire and invitation for the vulnerable to survive and thrive feels fundamental. I don't think I want to be a part of things that operate outside of those. And in that way, if I'm not partnering with what God is doing to do those things, what is the meaning of what I'm doing? What is the meaning of what we're doing?
Friends, this, this, this psalm and the image that it provides, I do believe is an invitation. It's actually two invitations. Um, some of us struggle with creating space to rest. And I think that there, is a, there might be an invitation for some of us to really work through that. What, what, what does it mean for us to create patterns of restoration for our bodies. <laughs> and I think some of us um, are, are, might be feeling an invitation into spaces of conflict, bringing our privilege and resources in conversation and connection with the vulnerable. Regardless of where your invitation is, friends, I am reminded of kind of the voices of the modern day abolition movement that pick up from the previous movements of abolition and that say simply, uh, when we are all free, then I am free. When we are all free, then I am free. And I think that there is a way that this psalm gives us an image of a community wherein people are restored because they know they are not what they produce. And wherein the vulnerable are constantly spoken to and heard and advocated for and a part of the life of a community because those with resource and privilege are doing their part to hear them, to see them, to respond to them, to partner with them. As we sing this song together, I wonder what the invitation is for you. It could be those things, it could be other things. But I wanna invite you to, to take a minute as we sing to really discern that. to discern what it is that God might be inviting you to as you consider your relationship between what you do, what we do in the world and what God is doing.